Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today we have a special guest back on the podcast. You might remember her from an episode a few months ago. Her name is Liza, and we had an episode in which uh, she talked about her story of erotic transference that she had towards her therapist and also her experience with dissociative identity disorder. There was a huge response to that episode. Lots of you emailed me, and I forwarded the emails to her, and she really appreciated that. And it inspired her to come back on the podcast to continue to advocate for things and to talk about her experience. Today, she's going to talk about the opioid crisis. She's going to talk about her own experience with opioids. And we, her and I, are going to get to the foundation of many people's experience with many people's, many persons' experience with addiction in general, and also the the way in which our society seems to miss the mark in, in terms of how to conceptualize addiction and, and the, the basic foundation of it. Um, most people believe it, you know, it's, there's something wrong with your character or you become physically addicted, these kinds of things. And that often misses the mark for most people. We're also going to talk about homelessness and how she experienced that. Also, she's going to continue talking about her experience with dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorders, it used to be called. But the main thing she wants to talk about here is attachment therapy or relational therapy, relational psychodynamic work, interpersonal therapy. Uh, she has experienced that, and it has, in a lot of ways, saved her life, as, as she will talk about. And I know half of you are therapists, and so this is inspirational, uh, to say the least, for us to to stick with our dedication to attachment theory and interpersonal psychodynamic work with our long-term attachment therapy with our clients and how she experiences that and and how it saved her from addiction how it saved her from a lifetime of 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 being alone and and traumatized and and stigma and she talks about how she just randomly came across someone whom she actually socialized into providing her attachment therapy. And without that uh, assertiveness that she exhibited, she would never would have ex uh, received the care that she needed because according to her and according to me, uh, our society is moving away from attachment-based long-term therapy and more towards these brief therapies of which, you know, brief therapies are absolutely helpful, but they can't be applied to all therapeutics presenting problems. And our field is, is, is just getting worse and worse, in my opinion. And, and, and so she talks about that. The other part of this that you know, for, for you clients out there, for you non-clinicians, it's an experience of what it's like to be a client that, uh, and I get a lot of emails that are very similar to her response and, or to her experience that, that she gets into. Uh, a little bit about the production of, of this episode. Uh, we're, we're talking over Zoom, which is kind of like Skype, and we don't have the best connection and her microphone on her end wasn't um, super optimized, but we did what we could. So you might have to deal with not so great you know, audio quality, but I, I think it's still absolutely worth listening to. So let's get into that episode with Liza. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Liza. Uh, can you introduce yourself uh, other than your name? I, I don't know what you want to say. <laughs> My name is Liza. I was on an episode featuring dissociative identity disorder, and I talked about that on your on your podcast. And you had me, and I was so honored. Thank you. 
Yeah. And a lot of people really responded to it. And I forwarded you a lot of those emails and uh, you touched a lot of people's lives. Um, <laughs> so you, you emailed me later and said that you had some things that you might want to come on the podcast to talk about homelessness, sex work, the opioid crisis. So let's get into it. What, what do you <laughs> just dig right in? <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you want to begin? Uh, well, I think the most like unique experience, well, there's lots of unique experiences, but the most like, I guess the safest segue is the homelessness piece. Like, uh, I actually did live in a homeless shelter last year for about three months. And I think that not a lot of people with, I, I, I would like to talk about that because I feel like, uh, there's, that's pretty much not an experience that people hear about directly. Most of the time, people that are in homeless shelters aren't interviewed by people on podcasts. Yeah. I thought it might be an interesting topic, you know, an interesting thing, especially for therapists who might be dealing with that member of the society. That, yeah. that, 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 that sector of society. Yeah. And also for people to have empathy and sympathy for homeless people, because there's this stereotype that homeless people are criminals or... <laughs> alcoholics and sometimes they are for sure i would say like a lot of times and even most times like okay. a lot of times there i mean it's 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 a stereotype for a reason right how did you end up being homeless what what events led up to that without getting into my whole history because i feel like i did a good job on my history with the last podcast in a nutshell i was in a, um, a domestic violence situation so i had all that history of trauma right and I ended up in a domestic violence situation where I was being controlled, right? Because of my history, I had issues with um, being independent and taking care of myself. I didn't really, I really didn't know how to do that, but I truly didn't think that I could, right? There was a lot of obstacles to that. Like I um, have my condition, dissociative identity disorder, that uh, makes it difficult for me to have a job. And it's not because I'm unreliable, but it will stress my nervous system out until I burn out. And I'm not, I don't know, think that's necessarily a blanket thing for all people with dissociative identity or dissociative identity disorder, but I, that's specific to me as a part of my illness. So when I, so there is a housing crisis in where I, where I am right now. Rents are absolutely through the roof. I was in a situation where I had to leave my home my nervous system was starting to shut down. If I didn't get out of there as fast as I could, I could have ended up in the psychiatric ICU. I wasn't being in a situation where I had any support. So I, there wasn't, it was an interesting situation because I thought that I had a real exit plan where I had a secure place to go. And the, the, the plan fell through. I couldn't go to the place, but I thought it was a safe, secure place for me and my son. And I ended up in an Airbnb with very little money not really sure how I was going to continue. Um, I, I definitely at that point was at risk for losing custody of my son. And it was also a custody issue because there were people trying to take my son away from me. And if I didn't leave the situation, um, it was potential for that to happen. I had to make this exit thinking I had a good place to go. And that fell through. I ended up at an Airbnb with no money. I had people helping me a little bit, but that's not sustainable, right? So I had no resources where I was. I couldn't leave the city. I was in an Airbnb with no money. And the only alternative was it was either give up my son 
and go try to find somebody's house to stay at. Like as a single person, it's a lot easier. But, um, or I can even leave the city and go stay with someone or go into a homeless shelter and try to like find my way from there as like kind of a bottom, right? But at least then I would have a secure roof over my head. I would be able to have a, have a, a base to take care of my son that wasn't going to be like interfered with by child services, right? I had to go into a homeless shelter, which was a very scary experience for me. I was uh, absolutely terrified. Yeah. What was that like? What was, I mean, I can imagine why that would be terrifying. What was terrifying about it? I had a sense of the populist. <laughs> um, I, I knew that going in there, there's going to be a lot of people with addiction issues. And I was also leaving a situation uh, where there was an addict, there was an opioid uh, situation. Like my, uh, my ex-partner had had a, uh, an opioid addiction and had overdosed and it was very, very volatile. Um, so I was leaving that situation to go into a situation where there's lots of drugs around. I didn't want to be around that crowd, you know, um, not because I think that they're terrible or don't have sympathy for them, but because I don't, I didn't, it's triggering for me to be around heroin and it's triggering for me to be around sex workers. It's triggering for me to be around, um, like, I didn't know what I was going into at all, actually, either. I had no idea what the homeless shelter looked like, only the pictures I had in the movies. And it felt also, too, like the biggest bottom of shame. I couldn't believe I was in that spot. I was felt so bo- at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> yeah, uh, our society judges that sort of thing. It's just like you're barely human at that point, right? But it's unfair to people because your situation was such that um, that was a, a healthy choice that you made of just like, because from the sound of it, it's like, well, I either give up my son mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or I go to this thing that is stigmatized heavily and uh-huh. also populated by people that I'm not quite sure about, but we'll find out. So did anything happen in there when you were there? Did any scary <laughs> things happen? All the time. All the time. Yeah. It was like living in like a, a movie, kind of. <laughs> it, it's like, it, it, so I have to sort of talk, I had to talk about the homeless shelter that I was in specifically. It was like the Hilton of homeless shelters, just to say, just to, just to clarify that. It's a very highly funded one, and it's specifically for domestic violence. So um, it has the highest funding, I think, per, po- per capita or per population in the country, in Canada. It's one of the highest ones funded in the country. So it doesn't even really look like a normal homeless shelter. Like, from my understanding now of homeless shelters, i got a pretty good picture of them overall um, in the sort of various states they're in. The one that I was in was like... Like I said earlier, the Hilton of homeless shelters. Like we all had our own rooms. They were very secure. Um, it kind of reminded me of like a cross between a prison and a hotel, like a cheap hotel. But there was a, all this uh, infrastructure for security because the domestic violence element makes things quite dangerous. Like there's sometimes people, very dangerous people, uh, searching for these women. And it was female only and like trans. Yeah, I've I've worked with clients who are in shelters like this, and I can you're describing them very um, accurately. In Seattle, we have similar domestic violence shelters, and they will ha- they're very 
hidden, actually. They, they yeah, they're, they're, they're meant to be, no, you can't find them on a map. You can't search them. Right. You can't Google them. And um, the, the front of the shelter is very deceiving um, purposely so, so that perpetrators who are trying to find their uh, former spouse to uh, get them back or to harm them, um, they can't, it's hard to find those people. And even if they do find the building, the uh, security is, is very strong. You it's walk Fort in. Knox. They call it Fort Knox. Like the cab drivers call it Fort Knox because it's so like heavily secured. Yeah. There are gates and, and cameras and security guards and, um, mm-hmm. and locked doors that can, and bulletproof glass. And you can't, <laughs> you know, you can't get through, you can't get in. Uh, it's not an easy thing. Um, and there are often, uh, you know, no males. And as a male therapist, when I would go into these facilities, it was it was quite a, a shakeup. Yeah. Because it was just so strange to see a male, because there's no there was no male workers, there was no obviously no male residents, and so I would walk in there, and and everyone was on high alert, you know. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's a man in the building. They, they inform you because everybody's triggered by that, right? Right, right. But they're wonderful facilities because for many people that's the only way they can be safe uh, you know that you, you call you can call the police but the police are going to be like well has a crime occurred and you're like well not yet but something will happen and police are like well call us when a crime occurs you know they can't do anything until there's like physical violence really right and so. often it's too late by then Pl- plenty of well and then people- you have to prove the physical violence and then you have to like there has to be a mark there's it's, it's the burden of proof is heavy when it comes to criminal comes to yeah crime. right and uh, often even with a mark they don't believe you and and so oh, yeah there's so much like sexism classism you know if you are struggling with an opioid issue oh yeah uh, your the, time <laughs> yeah the the criminal uh or the you know the police will sometimes just be like well you're just an addict so you're just making shit up and and you know th- this notion that a someone who is addicted to opioids uh the notion that they might also be a victim of a crime is somehow like hard for people to comprehend (laughs) right (laughs) it's like uh oh my god yeah well you're addicted to coffee have you ever been a victim of a crime did did your addiction to coffee somehow make you less uh of a victim no so they're more prone to being victimized i think in in some ways yeah exactly so um there there's a lot of that and so these shelters are places that will, um, you know, keep people safe, which is such a, uh, an incredibly needed thing. And if, you know, for the listeners out there, uh, for some of you, you've been through this, but for those who haven't, if you've never been through a situation where there is a, a threat out there and, and, and it could be something quite obvious, like someone has been beating you for the past couple of years and threatened you with a gun, or it could be something quite subtle, like someone who's just very erratic in their behavior and, they're not in control of their emotions and they might have ever, they might have never actually made any threats, but they've, but they've given the impression that they are capable of doing things that are quite severe in their emotionality. And, um, and it's hard to sleep at night and it's hard to function in life. Uh, We, you know, our, the bottom level of the Maslow's hierarchy is, is safety and shelter. And, and if um, there's many people in, around the world right now who uh, because the perpetrator hasn't done anything that the law will do deal with 
and or because the law just ignores victims sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. There are people just sitting around going like, I have someone who is, um, you know, potentially going to kill me or kill my children or, you know, splash acid in my face or get me fired from my job or something like that. Or you gaslight know. you like, or, you know, scare you enough. For me, it was um, a fear, the fear. Like, so I have, because of my condition, I have um, a startle. Like I, I can get scared easily, right? If some, even just a jump scare on a show, it'll like trigger my nervous system, my, my fight or flight. Right. And if I'm scared for real, like if there's any real threat, then it will just be like a chronic state and it doesn't take a lot to scare me in that situation, even just like a bad look or like uh, a loud, like a, like screaming. I mean, in this case, it was quite um, extreme. And I think the person knew me very well. They knew me very well. And they knew how to scare me. And there was, you know, it was, it was kind of a, kind of a bit of a, a war, right? Because in one hand, I'm trying to leave a situation. And I think my, my ex also suffered from, obviously, if I think there. If there's an opioid addiction there, then there's probably mental health issues as well. Like I personally think I'm not a clinician. I don't, I'm not an expert, but just from anecdotal experience that most of the time when there's a opioid addiction, there's some level of trauma. Yeah, absolutely. In this case, it his trauma was severe as well. And mine was also severe. So we had this, obviously this terrible dynamic, you know, that kept escalating. Yeah. I mean, to put a fine point on it, the, uh, the issue is that when people are relationally traumatized or physically or sexually traumatized in their life, their nervous system is in a, a constant or frequent state of hyper vigilance, hyper alertness, fight or flight, and easily triggered. And so there's a, a, a baseline of anxiety. And, you know, I, I talk with people about this and, you know, I'll have them rate their distress or alertness or anxiety and, They'll say like, um, you know, I'll, I'll describe the scale from one to 10 and, and they'll be like, I've never been below a three or I've never been below a four my entire life. <laughs> you know? You know? I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and when they stop and think about it, they're just like, yeah, I mean, it's just never been in, but because it's so normal 24 yeah. seven, the person walking around, they don't look like they're a four because it's so normal to them. Like someone who wasn't traumatized and doesn't have an anxiety issue when they become a four, they become very uh, they give signals that they're afraid and, and that they're upset and that they, they might need help or something. But the person who wakes up and goes to sleep at a four then, or a three, then, you know, that was like a good day for me, man. Four was great. Right. I was like Uh, more like an eight most of the time. Right. So then something happens, they go to the dentist and they're prescribed opioids, or maybe they start experimenting with different substances. You take an opioid, heroin, Percocet, uh, these kinds of things, and instantly the person is a one mm-hmm. for, the, for the very first time in their life, something that other people experience just normally. Like, you know, other people wake up and they're a one just naturally because they have a trauma. And so mm-hmm. the person who walks around as a three or a four constantly is as the lowest they can possibly, they take the opioid, boom, they're a one. And they're like, Oh my God, this is I, good. I feel <gasps> normal. Yeah. The, it's not even now, normal. It's amazing. <laughs> right. Now there's the euphoria with the opioid, but there's also just, you know, when 
you dose it correctly and you, you just feel, you just feel normal. You just feel like I, I feel like I can relax and just live my life. And so that's when the addiction kicks in uh, or the habit that leads to the addiction because uh, people finally feel okay. Oh, I love and, hearing you say this. Yeah. And it, 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 it you know, because people often look at heroin addicts as, oh, uh, you know, why did they get into it? And I'll say, it's like, like well, they're garbage. Yeah. Or weak or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way it, it, again, to, to be very specific, some people, they will have their wisdom teeth pulled, they're prescribed, uh, you know, Percocet or something. And it's the very first opioid they ever took. And they're, say, 22 years old. They, they're prescribed the pill, they take the pill, and then they just suddenly notice, like, wait a second, what is happening right now? Yeah. Like the pain went away, but I also just feel like normal for the first time in my life. I want more of this. How come can I have more of this? You know, so it begins with this question that's very innocent of just like, hey, dentist, could I have more of those pills? Because I felt I felt normal all of a sudden. Now to the person who hasn't been through those kinds of trauma, they take the Percocet, they, it, there's a, you know, an effect, but because they're always a one or generally a one, it, it, there's no compulsion to, to seek out more of those medications. Um, so that's, that's the big difference. And they found that to be true. I think of, I think there was a study of Vietnam vets because a lot of Vietnam soldiers, you know, American soldiers used heroin in Vietnam but only a percentage of them became uh, addicted once they came back to the United States. And they tried to figure out what was the difference. And I, I believe, I, I'm talking out of my butt a little bit, but I believe mm-hmm. the, the difference was that those people who had PTSD or had prior traumas were the people who retained their habit um, after coming back. And, and those who um, didn't just, just stopped using, it wasn't hard for them to quit. You know, because we often look at heroin or opioid addiction as, as this intense um, withdrawal symptom issue, which it can like immediately, be. right? Immediately, like, oh, you take it once and you're addicted, right? It's not right. true. Right. It it um, there needs to be other factors, factors psychological factors that uh, you know compel the the addiction or or make it really hard to quit as well, right? Um, so, is that your experience? I got a great story actually to, to demonstrate that very thing you were just saying. So for myself, I, so I grew up around a lot of drugs, right? Um, I was very like a lot of chemical drugs and a lot of it was like cocaine and crack. Um, where I lived, there wasn't heroin because this was in, uh, I'm thinking about back when I was a teenager, probably like the late nineties. Um, there wasn't the fentanyl stuff. There wasn't heroin wasn't as prevalent, at least where I was. Um, we were out in, like mid, mid Ontario. So, um, there was a lot of cocaine and crack and meth. Um, I was really like, um, an academic at the time, even though I was around all this stuff, I was an academic in school and I didn't want, I saw the people around me like Swiss cheesing their brain with, um, all kinds of chemical drugs. And I just didn't want that to happen to me. So I stuck with like marijuana and, you know, things were, I thought of were as safe, right? Um, like, like mushrooms and hallucinogens and things like that. But in that environment, it was impressive that I didn't do those drugs because of, at least to me, because uh, they were always there. 
but what I saw around me was like people's brain deterioration. So that was a big motivating factor for me to go, okay, I don't want to have to happen. You know, I need my brain so I can get out of this place. Right. Cause I had big dreams of becoming a doctor. Right. So I avoided those kind of drugs. I avoided opioids. I never took, I barely even took an aspirin to be honest, like, because I was so like, I just went, I saw like the people around me, just even just lifestyle stuff. Like I saw people around me just eating badly and drinking themselves into stupors. And I just wanted to like, even though I would do things like that, I wouldn't do it a lot because I was very, very scared of becoming an alcoholic so I, but I never, the, 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 the point to hear is that I never did try any opioids, really. I never tried them. I never took them. And uh, I didn't know that I actually had a very serious propensity towards opioid addiction. Um, and that, that, I found that out um, because I had to have, so I had an ovarian cyst that was the size of a cantaloupe in my stomach, right? and I had to have it removed through open abdominal surgery, some surgery that's very similar to a cesarean section, pretty much exactly the same, except they don't cut it to the uterus. And so I had this massive abdominal surgery and they put me on a morphine drip. And at the time I did not disclose any trauma history. I disclosed absolutely nothing to the doctor other than mm, I don't do drugs. Right. My, so I was put on an opioid, put on a hair, a morphine drip and uh, given Percocets as well. And um, like for two days, I had unlimited whatever, like unlimited morphine as much as I could take without, you know, ODing. (laughs) And man, I became addicted to that in like hours. Um, And I, it, to me, it was better than a vacation in the Bahamas. It made me feel like I had like hope you know, for the, like, I had some hope in my life. (laughs) Um, and I was aware of that coming from the hair, from the morphine. And I was like, yeah, tell me more about that. Uh, That is, that is very poetic. Essentially you had an, a, a drip of hope that was pumping into your veins. Oh yeah. Oh, because so for some people, they might not understand that. Can you explain that? Okay. So it goes back to what you were saying about your base pain level, right? Your base. I think of it as pain more than anxiety. Like I think it, it's, for me, it was a combination. I had like chronic, chronic pain, right? From all the injuries I procured being abused very viciously over many years, right? Obviously, I think I've discussed that in previous podcasts. But so I had this incredible pain I had an incredible pain tolerance. Like I, I like, uh, I like to think, I thought of it as like, I have the pain tolerance of like a Roman soldier. Like you could put a cigarette out on my arm pretty much. Right. Like I always wanted to try that just to see if I could do it. You know what I mean? But that's like where my, that's where my like pain tolerance was at. Like, so that's where I had, that's how I had coped with uh, the pain that I had, instead of turning to painkillers, I just, I had this vision of myself as like, so this is part of my altar structure is, uh, like one of my altars is like a machine or was a machine. It's actually shifted a lot right now. Like it's hard for me to say that about him right now, because I know that he doesn't like to be called the machine um, because that's not really what he is. Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's okay. 
Ooh. <laughs> Feelings and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's there's a lot there. Yeah. Actually, I'm so impressed I didn't break down on the previous on the previous interview. <laughs> um, so, do you want me to keep this in? I don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm not embarrassed. I'm. I mean, my ego is a little bit like dent. Is is a tiny stung, but I don't care really. Like, I, I understand it's all part of the process, and I mean, I'm sure the listeners would be responsive to it, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe they're I gonna mean, roast me on the internet. Who cares? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, one, uh, if anyone did, I I would delete them. But the uh, I don't think anyone would judge you for judge um, occasionally crying about yeah. the, the horrible, horrible things that have happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're. I just you're, didn't grow up with that being an option, so it's hard for me to be okay with me crying. That's yeah, awesome. but it, but I actually feel like it's a good exercise. It is. Yeah. I mean, well, everyone has shamed for crying. The, the other thing I want to point yeah. out for people is that we've talked about this, that you have a therapist and they have said it's okay for you to come on the podcast to talk about these things. Yeah, he's so funny. He just thinks it's absurd when I ask his permission for anything. <laughs> but but he, he believes he believes it's not a risk to you. Yeah, for me. I'm. He told me once that he thinks the only thing that could hurt me was him and my son. Yeah. It's, exa- it's an exaggeration, but I have to understand our relationship to, to know what he knows about me. Yeah. So you're, uh, you, you're getting this morphine. You've never had opioids before. And no, all this, and it and was all, a dream. And a all dream of a sudden, you, you have hope. You're just laying there at the hospital, and you're like, oh, my God. I started to believe in myself a little bit. So, <laughs> So, you know, I, so again, I just want, I just want that to be driven home to people that because of a simple molecule going into your vein and eventually into your brain, you now have hope. You don't, you don't feel the pain and you believe in yourself for the first time. Like, Like, you know, 50 years of therapy will get you halfway there, but, but a morphine drip will instantly get you there, you know? Um, it was unreal. Yeah. And and that's why people are compelled to use this. And that's why people's lives go down the tubes because the substance has a lot of side effects. Oh, and yeah. it's why people will accidentally overdose and accidentally kill themselves because the substance is, you know, heroin is unregulated. And so people often don't know yeah. what they're taking. The you want fentanyl, right? Fentanyl is like the worst because four grains. Fentanyl. No, right. what is it? Carfentanil. It's four grains of carfentanil, and you can overdose on that's four grains the size of salt. Right. So, so. Uh, it it it's because of that. Uh, you know, there's there's the only other answer is an answer that I provide, which is long term therapy. And I'm here to tell you that with years and years of that um, hard work and therapy, you can expect a fifty percent, so to speak, recovery. For, especially from the sort of abuse you've experienced and or just really good management of symptoms. You know, your dissociative identity disorder is not likely to go away, uh, but you've through therapy learned how to manage it. Um, and uh, so, but with, um, but with, and the other disorders, PTSD and anxiety and the, on, related, right? yeah, related. Emotion, emotional pain, physical pain. I got to um, add to that. I got to go on with that story a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Because it really paints a good picture of what you're saying. So, like, I, 
So I had this morphine drip. I was addicted pretty much immediately. And I hit that shit as hard as I could, right? Because they have limiters on it. You can't actually overdose on it. So at the end, so the two days I was in the hospital, they were preparing me to go home. And they, like, this is how addicted I got immediately. They were preparing me to go home. And they told me that I had to have it in the, the pump in my arm for six hours before, uh, without clicking it, before um, they would take it out, right? Just to make sure that I could handle, you know, my pain. I told them, I was actually quite, I got quite, it's funny, I got quite um, aggressive with it. And I'm not an aggressive person, uh, generally, um, especially towards caregivers. Um, but I told her, I just said straight up, like, that's not going to happen. You're not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have this in my arm for six hours and not click it. So I said, if you want to be like kind to me, I'm going to hit this one more time and you're going to take it out of my arm right away. And then we're going to do it like that. And whatever I experience on the other side of this, I'm just going to deal with it because I knew that there was no way I was going to have that in my arm for six hours without clicking it. Because it's like, like you said, it's like a, like a, instant flood of like hope and self-esteem in like one click and it, and, and and that was like I, she took it out of my arm she she was mad at me but she did it she took it out of my arm and I just cried and cried and cried like I was losing the best friend <sighs> but um I didn't go back to that. (laughs) However, and there's a little bit more to the story too, because it it plugs into exactly what you're saying with with therapy, long-term therapy. Probably a year and a half when I had another exposure to opioids. Um, So my ex, I was telling you, had an opioid addiction. I didn't really understand that he did have that I didn't know about it I didn't really know how to see the signs in hindsight I knew I saw the signs because I as you can imagine like I have like I'm very observant of body language and I'm hyper aware of you know hyper vigilant of how people are behaving and preoccupied really right um so I was able to I did observe all the signs of opioid addiction but I didn't know it was an opioid addiction I thought he had a brain tumor (laughs) And I was, but, but it turned out he was doing heroin and he had, I think as a way to try to segue me into that lifestyle. Cause in his mind, he, he had started to, to sell me on the idea of heroin being like a good, safe, functional thing to do that a person could do it and be functional and go to work, but that the real problem was be it being illegal and people having to scrape for it. And but that if we just took away the illegality of it, then it would be a completely functional drug for people to do. And so he had gone out and bought me as a way to try to like, I think, because I was trying to leave him at the time as a way to try to like either keep me there. I mean, I don't actually know his real motivations because he never told me, but he bought me like a rock star bag of Percocets and uh, knowing how much I like them and uh, insisted on crushing them up so that they're more addictive even in that state. And I took the bag and I took them a couple times and it was nothing compared to the bliss and care 
and feeling that my doctor gave me was nothing compared to that. It was like a pale, like cheap imitation to like, I felt like my doctor had installed like a morphine drip in my heart. Like, and so I didn't get physically addicted to them. Like it was kind of, it was surprising. Like I, it was shocking actually. Yeah, well, I'm very happy for you for a number of reasons. One, that you, you didn't go down that road, but also uh, that you had cultivated a helpful and secure relationship with your doctor, ther- you know, the therapeutic relationship that, um, I mean, if, if nothing else proves that you're in the right treatment modality with the right practitioner, it's that, that right? this physical example of like, well, this is not as good as the, uh, the security and the self-esteem and the hope that I get when I am in my relationship with, with my doctor. So previously when you had your sister moved, you didn't have your therapist, correct? No, I had no, no, no support, no therapies. Right. So this is the uh, example, uh, a very excellent example and, and demonstration of in order to help people with their addiction issues, often it's, it's just that it's secure relationships. And it's something that we don't focus on. You know, we focus on abstinence and 12 steps, which are, which are good. They're fine, but it's like structurally functional, but it doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't address the foundation of it all, which is loneliness and trauma and chronic pain desolation yeah and um feeling because of good reasons that no one loves you yeah Uh, no one really does (laughs) (laughs) well uh well at least at that state you know like i mean it's sorry i don't mean to interrupt yeah 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 (laughs) because because in in, when when people are not only not loving you but also abusing you it's it's um, there's, there's no, there's nothing to grab onto. And so once you had your relationship with your doctor, there was something to grab onto. And, uh, and the, um, the Percocet was a pale, uh, you know, a pale comparison to that, that you're like, oh, actually, this doesn't feel as good as my relationship with, with my doctor. That's great. And you know what, too, though, like the, the, the challenging side of it being, being, uh, so this is where I think there, it, it's like, that's the, the hardest part of therapy is then allowing myself to be reliant on a person rather than a pill. Because a pill is a lot safer, more predictable than a person, right? You can go yeah. and buy a pill, you don't, you, and, and, and you can get a pill and you can sort of have a pill measured out and you can, you don't have to care about the pill's feelings. You don't have to navigate the pill right? Like my relationship with my doctor is a huge amount of work for me. Like it's a massive amount of work and it requires the courage of like an airline fighter. I find, I feel like to navigate that relationship with him. It's terrifying to trust him because any moment he could just pull that drip out. If he, if like, if he terminated with me, I think he would just wreck my heart. I mean, I think I've got enough infrastructure, like I've got enough toughness sort of in myself to like, I'll, I'm going to, I'm not a giver. I'll never give up. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to throw in the towel voluntarily, but, uh, but it's, it is, it's like, I have that precariousness with him. I'm like any minute he could just rip it out, you know, <laughs> and he's in a paid position. So it's like, 
I'm always like, I'm so preoccupied with that relationship. <laughs> but, but the transference, right? I'm able to like, I believe that, it, that the transference love that I had for him was like the primary source of like that, the primary source of that brain chemistry change, that, that inner physical, physiological difference. So it was the fact that I was, I felt in love with him and had all of those experiences that I had told you about right? And the tenuous process of building that relationship and how much, and, and, and even like he himself doesn't even like to hear about that. He doesn't even like to hear about how it actually affects me. And it sounds like bad on his part. Like it sounds selfish to me saying it out loud. I don't know if it sounds selfish to you, but he doesn't actually like for me to hear about like the, that level of effect that he's had on me, I think I can tell by his body language. He doesn't like to hear it. <laughs> and I think it has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of support for him in my relationship um, with him, but also that the relationship doesn't exist like that level, that treatment that I'm having doesn't really exist where I am. And he's doing it like pretty much out of the goodness of his heart. Cause he's not really making, he could make, a hell of a and get paid like 60 bucks every five minutes like considering his pay scale as a doctor he can book for to the quarter hour every five minutes and treat a patient right um and he'll spend like an hour with me right so i mean to me it's like he's taking a pay cut and he's taking also like a lot of on a lot of difficulty you know i'm a, I'm, I'm a challenging patient right although i obviously there's a reward or I don't think he would stay in it. Yeah. But, uh, but that the the, the relationship is not an easy thing. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's not popular. Like people don't love that answer. They don't love that answer. Like I try to explain, I literally want, one of the reasons I want to go on this podcast and talk about this is because you are one of the only sources of validation and, and for what I have seen in my treatment. Like I have never heard this from anywhere else except on your podcast. And I was like, when I started to listen to it, I couldn't believe how you were describing my experience. And I, and I, I thought every, a lot of people around were including my doctor who was very supportive, but also in kind of in, couldn't believe that just him spending time with me and talking to me could have that profound of an effect, you know? Like to have that level of improvement and level of, 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 of positive change in my life just from literally spending time with me and talking to me, right? I mean, obviously there's skill involved. He's very skilled and in, in, he's very skilled. It's like a lot like with psychology and stuff like that, obviously. But there's a huge, so where I come, where I am here, most of the treatment is very, they, they have tend to have, an, so I only have access to free resources, right? I can't afford to pay a therapist at all. Like it's impossible for me. So the free resources where I am are all based on skills and they're all based on brief therapies. You don't develop a relationship. You don't talk about, if you're talking about your feelings, it's all skill-based. Like it's, if there's never, you're not encouraged to develop an attachment. Most of it's cognitive, cognitive, most of it's CBT based. Um, and they focus on, like literal functionality. Can you get up in the morning and put on your clothes and brush your teeth and go to your job? Right. That's basically their baseline. I mean, your level of well-being is like based on how well you, you know, 
there's not like this idea. Like if you are like, I, I would go to them and I would describe, so they're like, how do you cope with your PTSD? How do they would ask me? And I would say like, Oh, I do a lot of yoga and I meditate and I like go for jogs and I like, I'm, you know, I have a writing, I have a writing, uh, you know, a writing, what is it? A writing routine. Right. I, I, I journal. I'm like, uh, you know, I go to like meetings for, I didn't go to survivor support meetings, but I would go to like community healing events where people would be like all about healing or something like that. Like all these things. I had friends. I, uh, I did whatever I could behaviorally to improve my condition and live a life, try to have a real life. And so they looked at that and they, they go, well, we can't help you. You know, you, you're doing all, all the things and way more than, than what we prescribe. Like you, you should teach class. They literally wanted me to come in and teach classes. Like, um, I had, I've had that so much. I'll be talking to a clinician and I'll be like, wow, you know so much. Like, why are you here? <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't fucking matter how much I know. <laughs> I'm still suffering. Like, I'm still in pain, continuous chronic pain. My PTSD is out of control. I have, you know, all these things that I, I had, like these memory problems and I'm in a terrible relationship that is obviously destructive. Like, um, it's, it's like I could not change it with cognition, no matter what I did. Yeah, of course you can't. Um, no one can. Uh, <laughs> to uh, you, that's obvious. But to the re- other, so many other clinicians, it is not. Yeah, there's a number of reasons for that. I'll, I'll just sort of ramble about some of those reasons because I, I think to provide the reasons for the listeners can help them to push back. One is this movement in our uh, culture, uh, in our, my field, of moving towards what we call evidence-based practice. And they will privilege certain evidence-based practices like, like cognitive and behavioral therapy. There is a ton of evidence for interpersonal therapy, which is essentially what you and your therapist are doing that can uh, literally cure people of various different conditions that, that we're presented with, including um, what you're talking about. Uh, there's a ton of evidence. Now, people in, in cognitive behavioral therapy are just for whatever reason more prone to do research that proves that their model works with certain conditions. Um, but people who work in, in, in my arena of, of theory, psychodynamic, interpersonal, they tend not to really care about evidence. I mean, they care about evidence, but they know that it's hard to do because it, it CBT you can do in 10 weeks, interpersonal therapy you can't do in 10 weeks. And so, um, so there's that. The other thing is, is that uh, people who are paying for these services, the government or insurance mm-hmm. companies, are obviously interested in driving down the costs. Um, oh, yeah. Not because they're assholes, but because um, they're trying to you know, figure out how to reduce costs. It's just a, it's a, it's a good value to have. Um, and so that and you triple- have someone saying evidence-based cheap. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and so they have a incentive to uh, pr- privilege the, the short evidence-based treatment as opposed to the long. Um, the other thing is, is there's big a misunderstanding. Okay. Cognitive therapy is evidence-based for particular issues like depression and anxiety. It, it is not a good, uh, there's not a lot of evidence that it helps with relational and attachment issues. Um, 
And, and so, uh, but because they, they talk about evidence-based, it just gets blanketed as just like, well, it's good for everything. And it's like, no, it's not good for everything. It's good for very specific things. And, and it's, um, and it's not even super good for those specific things. You know, there are people who go, you know, people depressed people who go through CBT and it doesn't work for them at all. And some, for some people it makes them worse. So Mm -hmm. there's this black and white sort of simplistic way of looking at the research. Um, but the, the, yeah, the people who are paying and, and the third thing that I'll say is that people with, uh, mental issues are a subclass in our society. They're marginalized and stigmatized and ignored, even though half of our population will suffer from something in the DSM at some point in their life. So it's like, we're marginalizing half of the population, um, if not more, in my opinion. And, uh, so they, as a group, when they speak up, uh, which is rare because of the stigma, they're ignored. Whereas people like men who stand up and say, I want my Viagra. Well, guess what? It gets paid for. Um, because society doesn't stigmatize that in the same way. Um, and so there's this huge, just like, well, you know, um, those people are lazy or they're broken or, um, they did this to themselves or they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstrap or some kind of attitude about it. And so the, all of those things culminate in a, uh, an, an atrocity really, uh, in the year 2020 for someone to live in North America, the most, you know, technologically and frankly, psychologically advanced society on the planet that's ever existed. And you can, and, and not only do you not have someone that can provide the right treatment for you uh, in a very straightforward way in your community, but many of people in my field don't even understand that that's the treatment that would be good for you. It's, it's really a terrible, terrible thing that, that we are doing to ourselves. And I'm just so happy for you that you essentially managed to socialize your doctor into <laughs> the, the service. Um, and I, no, and, <laughs> it's so funny when you say it because it's exactly what I did. And it's no doubt that he is actually getting something out of this as well. I can tell you from personal experience that um, a lot of meaning in my life is derived from providing this uh, service to people um, and seeing the healing. And uh, that's why I got into this field. And I'm, I'm quite positive that's why your uh, practitioner got into the field as well. And so screw the money. Like um, if I can pay my bills and I have a shirt in my back, that's fine. I, I'm here to, to try to make a difference. And, and I'm, I'm quite positive your practitioner is too. And that's, that's really great. And, and the, the thing, so he was, he happened to be like this magical fit with me right too like when I he was my cardiologist originally I, I've said that before but he was my cardiologist originally and when we talked it was like this perfect fit like we both had like he had a background of poverty and his reactions to me I remember them being like like he managed to get me to trust him despite all the odds and I think it it had to do with the, the way our personalities fit but but it was just this magical coincidence that he also like he actually listened to me like it was weird because <laughs> i wasn't used to doctors listening to me for real like like they would li- listen to to me but but you know not really not like you know they would assess me and then tell me what their opinion was and then 
that was kind of it, right? The most important point that I was making in there is that this treatment that I'm experiencing where I am, it's like it, it's like a unicorn, right? And that's one of the reasons I'm on this podcast is because it is hard to be the only one around me getting help. It breaks my heart to think that we know the cure for this cancer and yet uh, nobody believes me, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, you're preaching to the choir on that one, right? I, I mean, bet. I, I, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, so, yeah, and I think that the, the, the reason people flock towards that CBT treatment and ignore the actual truth, which is that, you know, long-term therapy works for like more like relational trauma, things that are chronic, right? Like is because it's, it's, it's expensive, you know, it's expensive over the long run and people in those positions are getting charity. So when you're getting charity, you don't get the best of things, right? You don't necessarily get the treatment. You get the thing that will get you by, right? Yeah. And I just want to uh, contrast that a little bit because like an MRI in the United States, for example, can be like $5,000 or something. Mm-hmm. Therapy, uh, especially when Medicaid is paying for it, is probably per year a probably about, let's see, 50 sessions times 50. So $2,500, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. So an MRI you know, people, they're, they're a little stingy with that sometimes because that's expensive, but they're, they don't have a problem handing that out. Mm-hmm. So it's, and the, if you did open the doors to long-term therapy being provided for medically necessary issues like trauma and, and attachment issues, then the, the cost I'm guessing would not be very high. Like the, the, there wouldn't be that many people. Uh, the cost isn't actually that much. Um, again, compared to like just a regular lab screening or an MRI, like it, in the grand scheme of medical insurance expenditures, it, it's just not that much. And so they're, they're scrutinizing over, over tiny, tiny little margins. It's and, that stigma, right? Like it's that people don't believe that they don't believe that love means anything. Right. Like they don't believe that love is an essential part of life. And I mean, it, it, I even say it, I don't cringe now, <laughs> but, but like getting people to understand that softness that like, cause, cause people really, there's the perception of being vulnerable and trusting and being dependent. It's as if being dependent is like this gross thing. Like it's yep. gross, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind of like icky, like, ew, like why would, how, how you're looked upon as like, like a baby pooping their diaper. Yeah. Why I, would you, I, I hear, I get these questions. Be, I get these questions sometimes. It's like, you know, how do I know if I'm a, addicted, addicted to my to therapy. therapy or something or, oh, you know, she's going to therapy. She's been, she's been in therapy for five years. That's a problem. She's addicted to therapy. And I'm just like, what in the world? Like, yeah, like what's she going to do when her, when her therapist dies? Like, what's she going to do then? Huh? <laughs> well, it's just like this notion it, that's, uh, that pathologizes dependency, as you're saying. Um, pathologizes yeah. people getting help. Path- pathologizes love. Path- pathologizes um, the need for love. 
Well, um, and all the things that you need to heal it. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's always just this really bizarre thing. Um, you know, very rarely there will be people in therapy that probably need to be terminated because they're just spinning their wheels and they're afraid to move on when they don't really Maybe need they're therapy. threatening their therapist with a knife or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But these, these are extremely rare circumstances to the point where I've never been in a situation like that. And I've treated thousands of people. I've, I've yeah. never been in a situation where I've had a client who I thought is coming to therapy that probably shouldn't be in therapy. I've, I've, yeah. ne- I, I've, I've never terminated with a client um, like that. I've never, um, early in my career, because of the way I was trained, because it's common to train people this way, I would occasionally check in with clients that I was seeing long term and I'd be like, so kind of seems like you've met all your goals. It's time to terminate. And universally, what I would find is that clients would react very poorly to that. They'd be like, mm-hmm. wait, no, 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 no. I, I, I need this. Like, I don't think you understand what this is doing for me. And over time, I learned, I was like, oh, you know, like, there's a deeper need that people have for healing that is sometimes, uh, you know, uh, facilitated through a little bit of amorphous therapy that um, is, as you described, just someone listening to you and not interrupting you and not listening with an agenda. Like that's a very important experience that all of us deserve to have. And regardless of traumas or not, but particularly if you've been traumatized, um, and so many benefits happen from that, to be very clear for people if they haven't been convinced by previous podcasts um, uh, in terms of the sort of outcomes that we might research and, and hold up as, as evidence-based as, is lesser symptoms, fewer symptoms, less intensity of symptoms like um, anxiety, depression, the need for drug abuse, uh, parenting improves, um, I... uh, sleep improves. Your uh, confusion is less, uh, self-esteem goes up, uh, anger goes down, you know, aggression goes down, uh, you know, the ability to hold a job goes up, which means you can pay more taxes, which I I guess (laughs) matters to people sometimes. And so those are all evidence-based things that are facilitated through interpersonal and other, you know, humanistic, Rogerian long-term therapies that um, people need to understand. But they don't, like I... I found that they don't like the truth. I think there's kind of an addiction. This is kind of me, you know, just fucking on my ass. Um, but I think that there's like like an addiction to cognitive theory. It seems like there's this this clinging to cognitive therapies because it makes people feel so powerful to think that they have something they can control like that, right? They have this thing in their minds that if they just think the right things, then they can create the reality the way they want it to be, right? Yeah. And to be clear, it, it does work in some circumstances and, well, can, yeah. and can work for some, and we all do it, right? Like um, I'm on the road and someone cuts me off and I initially have this feeling like I want to run them down and, and yeah. hurt them. Um, but then in my mind, I say, okay, wait a second. Like they probably just didn't see you. They're, you know, they're, you know, be in control of your thoughts, emotional regulate. We all do cognitive... Yeah, we all do cognitive therapy to ourselves, and 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 cognitive therapy uh, is is worthy, but it oh, yeah. certainly is not the panacea that uh, some people seem to believe that it is. Especially, especially when you're dealing. So, like the facilities that I would go into to get free treatment are like the treatment for the bottom of the barrel people, right? It's the people who are chronically traumatized, who are prostitutes, who are drug addicts, 
and who are in domestic violence situations for like 20 years or who've been, I mean, obviously you have other members of the populace who have been assaulted on more an acute basis, but, but it's rare that I think when you're dealing with a free service, you tend to attract a lot of people who have the, the highest amount of traumas, right? Because they're going to have the most problems and maybe make the least amount of money and be able to only access free services, right? Right. I mean, the people that need this therapy the most are least likely to get it right. because they can't pay for it and it's expensive and we don't value it as a service. Really. And it's, it's, we don't value those people. Uh, we, oh yeah, you know, even the, last you know, all of us understand what you're saying. Like it's, 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 it's quite well understood. And I just want to point out that us humans have set up that system. We created that system. It's like, uh, you know, lighting, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like, uh, a, a lake on fire with oil and saying like, okay, this is our swimming pool. It's like, we were the ones that did this to ourselves. Like it's not some, uh, a system that was handed down from God. It was, we create <laughs> our we legislators, our voters, our newspapers that don't pay attention. Like we are the ones that are, are ushering in an age and a time of, of oppression and marginalization. And, and again, if we want to get, uh, if we want to convince the voters who don't necessarily care about people very much or they're or they aren't given a chance to care um a lot of economic troubles happen because a lot of tax dollars go to essentially paying for services that don't really help a lot of tax dollars are going to go towards trying to help people who are homeless because of lack of treatment or because they have psychogenic issues like IBS or other kinds of things, yeah. uh, chronic fatigue because they haven't been treated effectively, uh, domestic mm-hmm. violence, um, criminal activity, uh, raising kids who are also likely to uh, utilize welfare. Um, now, those aren't, in my uh, opinion, reasons that should motivate people. It should just be for the goodness of our own heart because we do have the capability um, you know, if, if you have extra food in your hand as you're walking out of the restaurant and there's someone who's hungry, you give them your, that food you, just because you care. that You don't have to get some sort of receipt of benefit back from this person. You, you just care. And so uh, we should do that. But if people need That's some nice. kind of concrete example, you know, there's plenty of studies that look at that. But so I wanted to ask you about something else because, um, I, you know, for, for time's sake, but you also talked about you wanted to talk about sex work. Did, did you... <laughs> Did you, I don't, you know, I, I, I do want to talk about it, but I, I have to like, I can't, I don't, it's a law. I mean, I feel like maybe we should save it for like, you need to do another podcast, right? Okay. Talk about that specifically because that's a subject that you got to get into and then talk about yeah, yeah, it. It's yeah. very complicated. Um, and I feel like I got a very good perspective on it. And I think that what, what I want, my goal here is to like be an activist for stigma. Like, cause I think that stigma is one of the biggest issues here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're really helping that for sure. Uh, my little drop i'll put my little drop in the ocean and hope it helps <laughs> well people were really moved by you being on the podcast last time so I, i'm guessing it'll be similar um so, so yeah um okay well so getting back to homelessness then what how did how did you get out of homelessness you know what was the story there okay so I mean, in a way, I'm an extremely privileged homeless person, right? I 
it sounds weird, but it's true because I, I had my doctor going into the homeless shelter. So I had an established relationship with this therapist, right? So when I was breaking my cycle of domestic violence, I was not just going through another cycle of domestic violence. So the pattern of domestic violence often is that the woman will, or the, not just the woman, but the person being abused, because men are abused as well, leaves their partner and then goes back and leaves and goes back. And there's, because because the brain, because this is what I learned while I was in there as well, that uh, from the clinicians, is that there's a brain chemistry addiction to domestic violence. The person who is in, who's being abused, is used to that. They're used to, they're acclimatized to that chemically. And so when they uh, experience like a huge crisis, there's an adrenaline rush, and then you have to handle the crisis. And then there's the honey, then there's the, the, the period of quiet, and the, then there's the, um, the honeymoon period where the, the reconciliation. And that honeymoon period, that reconciliation is like the crack, it's like the heroin. It's like that. You, you, uh, I will, would work so hard to get that approval, to get that person back to like that moment when I thought, when I felt like they loved me because domestic violence never starts off domestically violent, right? It, it starts off with a honeymoon period and, and then will emerge from there from my experience and from what I've observed around me. And then, but once you're, wait, if you have that pattern, then leaving that pattern is like just, it would have been utterly impossible for me to leave if I didn't have my doctor. Like I would not have had, it, it takes a level of self-esteem that doesn't exist in someone in that situation, like to value oneself. To me, I just thought, well, I've got it made then. Like he, I had a roof over my head. I had food, you know, I had a nice bed to sleep in. I had like, like it was secure to me. Right. Cause I had such a precarious impoverished upbringing and I, I've been so poor that I've had to like eat out of dumpsters and stuff like that. Like homeless then, just pure poverty. Um, but the, which I actually thought was cool just for the record. I didn't, wasn't upset about that dumpster experience. Those dumpster experiences, they were uh, more, more resourceful. I felt like I was being resourceful, but um, so I was privileged as a homeless person because I had my doctor helping me and he had already so the reason I left my spouse was be, not because of a crisis, but because of the fact that I had saw that this abusive, this relationship was abusive and that it was affecting my son. So I actually had to have my son there before I could care about myself enough to leave because I didn't, if it was just me being abused, it would be very hard for me to like um, register that because of the level of abuse that I had experienced the abuse that I experienced from this person that I'm referring to, uh, it was not visible uh, on the outside. Like it was like emotional abuse and controlling and gaslighting and things like that. Things that were much more to me that, that didn't even count. You know, I just thought like, that's just, that's just how people are. Right. You know, and you just have to accept them the way they are. And I had a good lot. Right. But when I saw my son doing badly, I, I knew that like, like, like that's when I, that's that switch for me. I was not going to let this happen to my child. Um, so I was able to have that insight, but I also had my doctor. He didn't tell me what to do. Right. He didn't advise me at all. 
but he gave me the idea, the experience that I was like, whatever he's doing, whatever he's got, I want what he's got. I want him. You know, I wanted him, right? And I wasn't like to be my lover, to be my partner, you know, but I didn't, I knew that I couldn't have him, but I, the fact that I was attracted to him and I like had the idea that I deserved something like that, which was a very new concept for me. It was like a very new emergence for me to be like, I feel like I should have that, which is a, it was such an alien, uh, such an alien thought, um, such an alien idea to me. Um, when I had, so we had had a psychiatrist assisting us briefly. Um, when I had talked to my psychiatrist about how I, my, my feelings for my doctor, I'd asked her, did he spoil me? He must be spoiling me. You know, like I, I, I if I get spoiled, then I'm not going to be able to be, I'm not going to be able to have anything if I'm spoiled. You know what I mean? Like to me being like having something good like that was being spoiled. <laughs> like it wasn't even realistic to have anything close to what my doctor was giving me. That, that was like the initial concept that I had. But then I realized like, no, 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 whatever's going on here, I got to have a piece of this somehow. And the only way I'm going to get this is if I first leave this relationship and go into the big scary unknown. And uh, that was the homeless shelter. I mean, maybe, did you want me to talk about some of my experiences while I was in there? (laughs) Whatever you want to share, whatever you feel like the listeners need to hear. Oh, I also like your prompts too. I think those are great. Yeah, it was a very, so I kind of think I was saying before, it was like the Hilton of of homelessness. So like when you, we had all of our own rooms, it was very secure. Um, There was facilities for children because it was a domestic violence shelter with women and children. And uh, um, it was a very, very weird place to live because it was like living in, in an industrial, like a, like a, like a boarding house or it's an industrial environment. It's like a, it reminded me a lot of like a, like a hotel and like a prison because there was the prison aspect was that every door locked. Um, you, there was cameras everywhere. You were constantly on surveillance. Um, you had a curfew. There was rules you had to follow. You couldn't bring food in. You had to eat all the, only the food that was on the premises. Um, you couldn't drink alcohol. You couldn't, it was very, very controlled that way. Um, people were allowed to tech, they had a harm reduction policy. So you were allowed to like use offsite, but, but I didn't use offsite, but, but I knew that the women were not using offsite. Like it was going to the bathroom, right? There's no cameras in the bathroom. Like, you know, a university education, and her like three kids who went to boarding school or something like that. And then you'd have uh, the Christian woman who was like very conservative and like, you know, maybe sheltered from certain elements of society. And then you'd have your hardened hookers who are like, you know, street hookers and uh, obviously working still. Um, You'd have like people who are full on criminals who like would steal your stuff. I mean, I had a woman like, threatened me with a knife one time because I asked her to use a cutting board very politely (laughs) she was cutting cheese on the counter and when you're in a kitchen like that like god knows what's on the counter right so 
I asked her just if she could use a cutting board and she just looked at me like she was going to stab me in the eye. It looked very much like I should, you know, good thing I'm trained in knife fighting, you know, like otherwise I would have been kind of like, but <laughs> she didn't know that though. You're not laughing at my jokes, Kurt. <laughs> I am. I, I'm just not, um, I, I'm just mindful of interrupting you. So. <laughs> but um um, yeah, I mean, for people who didn't, don't remember from the previous one was you have a extensive martial arts training from two, uh, to varying degrees, abusive uh, teachers <laughs> who uh, one was a, essentially a cult, uh, a sadistic, psychopathic cult leader yeah. who was potentially capable of murder. And, um, so as a, as a, as a silver lining on that horribleness, you, you <laughs> emerged, <nice> emerged <laughs> with excellent knife skills. <laughs> so when the hookers at the homeless shelter are threatening me, I'm totally better at them than knife fighting. <laughs> they don't realize. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. That makes me feel better to joke about it. Yeah, you have this massive mix of populace, and it's like I had people offering me stolen goods all the time, and... Uh, like, I mean, it was such a mixed bag because people mostly were pretty nice. Like, like, and I'm very good at getting along with people. Like, I don't react hostily generally. So I'm pretty good and also really good at, I, I have to admit, I'm good at manipulating people in that way. I mean, it's, I hate saying that because it makes me feel like I'm dishonest. But that was a life skill I had to learn, like, really fast. And so for me to just be able to notice, like, okay... If I, you know, treat this person, it just really comes down to just treating people like other human beings. Like, it's really, even though there's these sensibilities, they're like, like, I, I saw so many overdoses while I was there, Kurt. Like, it was literally, it felt to me like a daily occurrence. Maybe it wasn't literally a daily occurrence, but it sure freaking felt like that. That was really hard for me because I had been traumatized by an opioid overdose with my ex. He had overdosed on something. I don't know what it was, but he, uh. I found him like blue and not breathing and uh, my son was there, had found him too. And uh, it was just, it was traumatizing, very traumatizing. So when I was around people who were overdosing again, that was like a huge PTSD trigger for me. And two, it's, it's like, this wasn't a huge temptation for me too, but there tends to be like uh, people when they're in that situation, they have a lot of camaraderie, which is good. Um, but they also tend to like exacerbate each other's wounds and poor coping skills as well. So they're like, you know, it's easy to get sucked into like kind of like the drama there as well. Is this helpful? Like, you know, is this uh, helpful? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah. yeah I th- again, I think people need to hear what it's like so that yeah. they understand that um, even when you find yourself in a homeless shelter that has welcomed you in, which is a great thing. Um, it's and he's not... so well equipped the way mine was. So well equipped. Yeah, like, right. The um, other homeless shelters in the in the town are not that well equipped. Not at all. Not even close. Right. There are uh, other homeless shelters where it's say put on by a religious organization, and they're not. It's not a domestic violence uh, shelter, and it's more informal. And there's. It's not. It's not. Uh, there's not, it's not secure and yeah. um, it just beds in a room. Yeah. Right. right. There aren't workers 24 seven, for example. And so um, even 
even sort of best case scenario, this, these shelters, uh, it's still not safe as, no, as really. what people deserve to have. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a matter of just like, and the thing is, it's funny too, because when I went into that system as well, the, the system itself uh, traumatized me a little bit because uh, they, um, so I disclosed my condition. Right. And I was also, I had just made one of the most scariest moves of my life. You know, I've done even, it was even it, to consider how scary to, to sort of understand how scary it was for me. So I had left this cult guy before, you know, so the, the guy, the cult person that you were talking about before who had been my martial arts instructor left his farm thinking he was going to kill me for sure. 100%. Right. And he was extraordinarily frightening. Like that didn't scare me as much as leaving this situation because my son was involved. And so it adds like another level. It added like, I would say like 10 times worse. Like I, it's hard to describe how frightening it was to, to go into a situation like that thinking I'm going to be going into and throwing myself on the mercy of the system. And uh, which has, you know, sometimes helped, sometimes not. And I'm putting myself in a position where I have to disclose my illness. And also because my symptoms were like, uh, were, were massive at the time. Like I was, uh, I was, I was having a lot of amnesia, a lot of confusion. Um, I was having very difficult switches between personalities. Like it's hard to describe, but it's like my normal, normally my system will, uh, it will like adapt well, right. And seamlessly and I'll kind of move from situation to situation. The outside world won't know what's going on in me. But because I was so, so stressed, uh, that system was not working very well. And um, my alters were in a lot of stress and I didn't know how to help them. And I had like, I remember I would go to, so there's 24 hour support staff where I was and I like started using the support staff a lot. Right. I use which, you know, seems reasonable, right. Going and trying to get, some help and get some support and trying to like talk about my, my feelings and because that was always very helpful to me. Um, and so when I started doing that on a daily basis, going and asking for the help that was there supposedly 24 hours a day, as much as I supposedly needed, they started to think that I was then incapable of living on my own. They started to think, question my ability to parent my son. Cause I had, to switch into a child altar a couple times just to relieve her uh, stress level. So like to let her come out and let her like talk to somebody was like saving me from going into the ER. Right. But people are super scared of DID. Yeah. They don't get it. Right. Um, one, <laughs> they don't, they don't get it. And, uh, and, and just generally speaking, um, mental conditions scare people for sure. Yeah, for um, sure. even people who are professionals. Right. So, yeah, yeah they had uh, never seen DID before and they saw me switching and they were just like, they shit the pants. <laughs> like, yeah. I just, yeah. And even if they went to consult they with an ex with someone higher than them 
uh, it's not guaranteed that that person would even know what to do. So yeah, that's, that's really scary. And in this situation, once again, I had a privilege. I had an advantage because I had my doctor. And so I could always go back to him as an authority and say like, he could, he would go to bat to, for me for basically anything because he believed in me as being a, a good parent and being a, and being fully capable of taking care of myself. And also I had a psychiatrist who was not anywhere near as effective as my doctor. She was effective in certain ways where he was weak, but she was the, also, she was the golden ticket for getting a respectable authority figure to vouch for me. Right. So his, his authority wasn't that great because he was just a GP. Right. But because she was a, a specialist um, and she was the one that they trusted, even though she wasn't, anywhere near as effective at treating me as he was, which is sad. Yeah, that is sad. So how did you get out? Um, well, uh, it was kind of like, a, I took a big risk. Um, so there is a housing crisis. Finding a place was nuts. Um, practically impossible for somebody in my position. So I was on a, a geared to income, a geared to income uh, waiting list. However, um, the priority list is much shorter than the regular list, which is like 10 years long. But my list was a lot shorter, but it still doesn't, it's still not short. It's still potentially, there's could potentially be waiting for a year, possibly two. It really depends on how things go. Right. So I was only able to stay at the homeless shelter for about three months. So by some fluke chance, I overheard a friend saying that a friend that her neighbor was renting out the top floor of his house and I, I asked her to set me up with a meeting. And I know I can come across as very trustworthy looking. Not that I'm not, but I didn't tell them I was living in a homeless shelter. I didn't like disclose anything about myself. I just put on my interview clothes and went over there and, you know, knocked it out of the park. They also were very casual and they knew my friend who was the neighbor. So they didn't ask for any background checks. They didn't ask for proof of income. Uh, Ontario Works, which is our social service, which is our social service uh, stipend. So then I rented their top floor, which was actually, it was a huge risk because I didn't know this person I was moving in with. It was a man. I got a feeling like it wasn't a bad situation, but it wasn't going to be a really great situation either. But at the same time, I thought it's better to have this than to be in the homeless shelter. Because then at least I have a degree of freedom, right? And uh, a little bit of independence. And so... That was how I got out. I rented this place and it was all of the money I had from OW, literally all of it to pay for this rent. So that left me with a not a lot to live on. And that when I, when I was talking to you the last time I was still living there, I was just about to move. Like I think I mentioned that on the last podcast. So now I have my gear to income housing and the rent is so much better. So reasonable. That's how I got out. Good for you. That's that's good news. It sounds, so there's a little bit more to it, I guess. It's like I got out also too by committing, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't going back to my ex, you know, I wasn't going back to, um, I stayed, stayed in my therapy. Um, I like, I like, yeah, I just committed to being brave and taking those risks. Yeah. So, fantastic. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. And I'm glad that you know, you advocated for yourself and utilized the therapy well. And yeah, I'm, I'm just really happy for you. That's fantastic. 
Yeah, thanks for it. <laughs> so, um, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners, Liza? I feel like I always want to just reiterate how much of a, how I believe that, like, relational therapy is such a cure for so many of our chronic illnesses, mental illnesses in society. Like, I, I believe that the relational therapy that I had was a cure for domestic violence. For me. I became allergic to people abusing me through this therapy which is amazing. I even see sensible people, you know, people that aren't in my position, making poor relationship choices over and over again because there's no intervention, right? I don't know. I just wish that people would get it, that being, that this attachment is important. And if we can get over our revulsion towards being vulnerable in these attachments and to normalize and create that as a society like then then we can like then there then then those problems will likely dissipate just like a wound will close after been cleaned right like i would love to see that i hope that whatever i'm doing here is helpful to some degree to someone yeah that's beautifully put and for therapists out there who are listening half of our listeners half half of our listeners are therapists it's either a reminder or a bit of a wake-up call and for the the clients out there or the people who aren't clinicians it's a roadmap for recovery and well-being that that some have taken advantage of and some might be inspired by you to do so um, thanks for sharing it so wonderfully thanks Kurt. i really I'm really grateful to be here. This is, I feel like, a bit of a life bomb for me. I mean, it's very fulfilling to have the idea that I might be able to help others. Absolutely. As you know, all the mm-hmm. emails that you were, uh, that I forwarded to you, you helped so many people. And those are just the people that happen to email. So, um, yeah. So, thanks for coming on the podcast, Liza. So, can I say some more, one more thing to the listeners? Please, please. <laughs> if there's any listeners out who want to comment, and tell me how the, the podcast has affected them. I really welcome that. So please, uh, please, please do email Kurt about it. Yeah, and I'll forward it to Liza. Yeah. All right, take care, everyone out there, and reduce stigma because Liza said so. And if, <laughs> if you don't do what she says, remember she has good knife skills. Super nice. All right, <laughs> take care of yourself and uh, take care of others because you deserve it. You really do. Thank you.